0: you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Numbers uh, chapter 1 is where we'll be today, Numbers chapter 1. And if you, were, uh, if you missed last Sunday, you didn't get a chance to be here last Sunday, uh, we began our introduction to the book of Numbers and um, I, that was a uh, pretty helpful uh, kind of background study. And if you have an opportunity, you, you haven't yet, uh, please do kind of uh, definitely do go and listen to that on our podcast, on our YouTube channel. Uh, be sure to click like, et cetera, all that good stuff, you know, <laughs> and subscribe to our channel. <laughs> no, don't, you know, no need to do that. Just, just listen to it. It's good background material for uh, you to better understand the book of Numbers because it's uh, it's going to be, we're going to be in Numbers for a while. So uh, some of this background has been very helpful. Of course, I'll, I'll probably repeat some things, so uh, you'll catch along too. Anyways, we're looking at Numbers chapter 1 today. Uh, and again, I, I just looking at this slide, I really appreciate our design team. Our design team put this slide together. I think Brother LeVon uh, Brother oh, did a good work here, so he just love some of the graphics. I know different people on the design team create different graphics for uh, our various ministries, so appreciate that ministry of love uh, for us. Well, as a society, let me just begin, we all love numbers and lists, do we not? We love numbers and lists. And we live in a data-driven world. That measures almost everything by numbers. There's not an area of our life that we don't measure by numbers probably today. Uh, certainly there are things like the stock market. There are box scores and you know and th- such like that. There's even social media is all measured by numbers like how many likes, how many views, how many hit, uh, no likes and views. How many, uh, we, we measure school by numbers certainly grades etc. We measure definitely science and medicine. Uh, hopefully all these these instructions that we're receiving about how to handle living the COVID world are based upon actual numbers and data-driven kind of science, and good, helpful for us. And uh, we're, our sales, for sure, has for a long time been driven by uh, awareness of numbers and so on and so forth. We don't just love numbers. So we as a people, we, we love lists, too, don't we? Many of us make lists, lists of supplies, grocery supplies uh, to buy at the grocery store, list of ingredients for things we make. Uh, We all, many of us do to-do lists. We have lists of instructions in a list kind of format. Uh, Maybe recently, many of us are uh, interested in lists of, uh, of, of like, who won the gold medals or silver medals or bronze medals at the Olympics recently. And then, of course, you know, we love numbers, we love lists, but we go bonzo when it's numbers and lists, don't we not? Or is it just me? Okay, well, anyways, uh, I hope you... Top ten lists, I, I'm a sucker for those, you know, seven secrets to success. The internet, of course, has mastered this, right? Because, you know, just, you go to some website, you see some, you see these advertisements. Oh, 50 best jobs that you can apply for right now, you know, and oh, oh click, click. Oh, oh wait, not me, other people, okay? You know, and these 50 best places to retire in America. Oh, oh, click, click. Click, click, click. You know, fifty, po- you know, fifty screens later, I- I've looked at the whole thing. So, uh, I think I'm gonna stay in San Francisco. Um, uh, you got fifty best jobs, fifty best restaurants to eat in America, fifty best ribs. You know, all sorts of stuff. You just put a number in a list. I can give you like three things to know about your sermon today, and you- you're gonna eat it up, right? We love numbers and lists. Well, at least we mostly love numbers. At least on the web, they we know they know we like numbers and lists. Anyways. If you love numbers and lists, then like the average person in, in America, maybe the world, who knows, uh, then you're going to, you should love numbers because numbers is about a lot of lists and a lot of numbers. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I hope some of you had had a chance to read numbers, you know, kind of just kind of get familiar with it. Uh, how did it go? Uh, you probably got stuck somewhere in the first four chapters because it is a long list of names and a long list of numbers at different places, and that kind of like, Ooh, that's hard reading. No, How come, why is that? Why do we kind of get stuck on some of these long lists of names, long lists of numbers? Well, probably most likely because we we just don't understand why it's relevant for us. We don't understand why this this number and this list is significant uh, for us today. Uh, certainly, we, you know, the numbers and lists that we're interested in are relevant to us because they're, 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 they might be a box scores, sports, or they're, they're kind of recipes that we like, or they're, they're just places we want to go to and things like that. Just, they draw our attention. They, we understand it's relevant. But we sort of lose that in numbers because numbers was written over 3,400 years ago. That's a long time. And so we've lost some of the context. But when it was written, when it was given to the Israelites in the, in the, days of, in the day of Moses, those people who received the word and saw these things and saw the names and saw the numbers would have said, wow, that is awesome. That is cool. And, and hopefully, we'll, I want to, in our sermon today, I hope we'll be able to draw out. In fact, in the series of sermons when we cover the first four chapters, we'll be able to bring out the significance of some of these numbers and some of these lists that are mentioned in uh, the scriptures. And I hopefully, it will grow your appreciation uh, basically, the faithfulness of God and his word. But let me give you back, just kind of back, uh, go back a little bit, give us a review of Numbers. Numbers uh, records the 40-year history of Israel while they wandered around in the wilderness of, of Sinai. Uh, it, they had left Exodus uh, out of Egypt in Exodus, and now they were basically preparing to enter the promised land. Uh, and so this is that, but it takes 40 years in between. In this book, we learn this. We learn both of the faithfulness of God, and we learn of the necessity of faithfulness on behalf of the people of God. We learn both. And we learn that we need God's faithfulness, and we need our own faithfulness in the wilderness of life. This book, of course, is structured around uh, two generations, as well as two censuses, numbering those generations, chapter 1, chapter 26... And chapters 1 to 4, which we begin today, we're going to look at chapter 1 today, are God's instructions to the nation of Israel to take a census of that first generation that has come out of Egypt. So it's just uh, counting, counting who, uh, the number of Israel, the Israelites out of Egypt. Today we're going to study all of chapter 1, all 54 verses. So that's, that's a long section, and, uh, which shows basically how God prepares an army out of a nation of slaves. And though the chapter is long, I want to spend uh, and devote time to the actual reading of the Scriptures. Sometimes I don't do that, but today I wanted to because in the reading of Scriptures, we'll hear the the repetition uh, of of the verses. And And I hope that the repetition of those verses, as we hear it, would help you to understand. Because keep in mind, the Israelites, when they received the book of Numbers, they did not have it written down for them. There, there was no online version of it. There's there not even multiple copies of it for them. There was only one copy of it. And, even, and it was, or, first of all, delivered orally by Moses. And then later, he wrote it down. And so it wouldn't have been available to them. They would have just had to hear it. And they must have had great memory, you know, that just kind of make sure they heard what God said and followed to, in order to follow what God said. And this is just the first chapter, and there's... You know, so many more chapters in Numbers. So we're going to read, make sure we read, because we want to give attention to the public reading of Scripture and then follow. Uh, and so we'll have to shorten some of the teaching ex- exhortation time today. Um, <clears throat> So I'm going to read uh, a total for us uh, today of three sections of this passage. There's going to be three points of this outline. And in each section, I'm going to try to draw out the significance of any numbers or lists or, or just the, the highlights of those respective sec- for sec- of that section for people of God then as well as people of God today. So our outline is going to be oh, it's a, kind of a longer, wordy one. But three aspects of the census, this first sentence, that remind God's people that he will provide what we need in the wilderness of life and that we must be faithful to follow his commands. That's, that's kind of our outline today. So but three aspects of the census that kind of basically shows this theme. You almost might even say this will almost be a very similar outline to the next four, all the first four chapters. These first four chapters really show God's faithfulness as well as show the need for God's people to be faithful to follow God's commands. All right. So let's go jump right into it. Point number one is this. The instruction for the census. So God gives instructions for the census in verses 1 to 19. Let's listen to the word of God in Numbers chapter 1. All right, so, and I am reading out of the New American Standard, uh, 95 if you're interested. But New American, New American Standard Bible. Verse 19, verse, first 19 verses. This is the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tenth of meeting on the first of the second month. In the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. These, then, are the names of the men who shall stand with you? Of Reuben, Elizer, the son of Shedir, of Simeon, Shelumiel, the son of Zerishadai, of Judah, Nashon, the son of Amminadab, of Issachar, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, of the sons of Joseph, of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Badazar, of Benjamin, of Biden, the son of Gideonai, of Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, of Asher, Pegiel, the son of Akron, of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Dul, of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan, these are they who were called of the congregation, the leaders of their father's tribes, they were the heads of divisions of Israel. So Moses and Aaron took these men, who had been designated by name. And they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month. Then they registered by ancestry in their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Here we see that God basically gives his first command to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai one month after the tabernacle has been Completed and consecrated. And the command basically is to, in verse 2, take a census of all the congregation of Israel. Uh, it's, uh, this wasn't, of course, the, or maybe you might not know, but this wasn't the first census that was taken among uh, the nation of Israel. If you go back to chapter 30 of Exodus, and Exodus 30 verse 12 and following, their instructions are given by God for the first census that's actually given. And if you kind of you know get time to look that up later on, you'll find out that when that census is given to to number all the 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 congregation of Israel, the purpose of that was for taxation. It was for basically every person, every male uh, would be counted, and they would each have to give half a shekel. And all this money was gathered so that it would be given to the temple, uh, to the tabernacle treasury. And so while that was for taxation for uh, the building of a tabernacle the one here the one census here is for a different purpose it's for the purpose of not taxation but conscription conscription into the israelite army they were to count every male knows very specifically there god gives specific instructions to count every male 20 years old and upward whoever is able to go out to war they have to be able to fight that is and, and then they would be, all be counted and by, uh, in, a, in a very, in a very organized and logical way. Now I know that many of us are, are kind of maybe familiar with this concept. Uh, every country needs to know. Basically, they take census for kind of from. From ancient days really for two purposes to find out basically how much money you can tax as well as to find out what size your army can be and those are common you actually find examples of this in the in the bible throughout but these are true even today uh like uh, so when you if you're 18 years old you when you turn 18 you have to go and register guys right with selective service and and then all of a sudden you know that your name is somewhere in some government computer somewhere on a list, you know, and your, your name, your address, how old you are. And uh, if ever in the case of a war or crisis and they need soldiers for our army, well, you get put into a lottery where you might be drafted and you might be called to serve in the army or serve in the military. This census here in chapter one serves a very similar purpose. It was necessary. Why is this necessary? Why, why, do, why do they need to have an, uh, an army? Because God was preparing Israel to enter into the promised land. And to do so, they would have to, along the way, fight enemy nations. Keep in mind, the Israelites didn't have an army. You know, like we have, we have a standing army. You know, we as a country, most countries have standing armies today, and they were already set, but Israel, when having come out of slavery in Egypt did not have even a standing army, right? They didn't have guys who were professional soldiers all right on hand. These guys were, they were slaves. Some of them were artisans. Some of them were probably, uh, you know, skilled, people, skilled uh, servants. But a lot of them were probably simple laborers. They were hewers of rock, cutters of, of, of wheat. You know, they, they weren't fighters. They were just simply, they were slaves. And God was preparing them by giving them instructions to organize themselves into an army. Uh, much, it's kind of, this army seems more like a, like our reserve army. You know, you'd be, you'd be put on a list and you'd be called up to, to bore whenever, as necessary. But what we notice about this army that, uh, in the census is that if you didn't notice, it's, there's no upper age limit. It's just anybody that's 20 years old and up. Ours is 18 to 25, that's, you get put on the list. But for those, it's like you put on the list when you're 20 and up. So, you know, if you're 51 years old, you're on the list, you know. no matter You're 60-year-old, you can, you can kind of run around, hold a gun, you're going to be put on, well, hold a sword maybe or a spear, you, a bow and arrow, you put on the list. Everybody, every man 20 years and up is put on the list. Each man, and what we see is that each man of each family in this nation, of the tribe of this nation, is expected to do their part. There are... A nation that is basically helpless, wandering around in the wilderness, and um, and so they would need to protect themselves. And so God, uh, God gives them these instructions so that they would be prepared to serve as part of their as Israel's army. The great significance of this census that it reminds us how not only did every Israelite, as part of their nation, had to do their part and to be counted so if you, if you think about it, the people, if you bring it to the people of God today, you know, not that we need to be uh, constricted into God's army, though there is that kind of analogy. But in a sense, we who are part of the body of Christ, who are part of the people of God today, we also, in a sense, have a responsibility to do our own part, right? We too, if God calls, if God calls to give us a task, that we should be willing to do our part. Because God's given us gifts, he's given us skills, and we should use it to serve the body. You know, I oftentimes I talk to people. You know, I get, I get it sometimes when you, when you may go through a phase where, you're, where you say, oh, I need, I'm, I'm just resting right now, so I, I can't serve. And that's okay. I get it. Uh, you may need to work on your, focus on your spiritual life, but, it, but you can't stay there for long. That the, the pattern of one's life, the pattern of our lives ought to be characterized by, by service, by serving one another, using our gifts and talents to serve the body. And it doesn't even have to be formal ways. A lot of times, as long as you come here every Sunday and you kind of understand why you gather, part of the reason is to encourage one, and spur one another to love and good deeds. If you do that every week when you come to the body of Christ, you're serving the body. You will use your gifts to, spur, to serve the body of Christ. You know, I, I really hope that, you know, someone who's just sitting there and never does anything, It, it just doesn't say, well, you know, uh, pastor hasn't asked me to do anything yet, so that's why I'm not doing anything. You know, you don't need, you know, if you're at home, do you wait till your parents ask you before you do anything, if you do, you should feel guilty, okay? You should be already, as you grow up, you should be able to see things and say, oh, that I'm a part of this family, and there is something that needs to be done. <laughs> I know Cindy and I, uh, well, Sydney really more so than me, is trying to encourage or train our kids to kind of see things. What needs to be done as a family? What ought to be done? And, and to, to do it, to do your part, without us having to tell them all the time, though we tell them all the time. Uh, but that's because they're kids. But not so for adults. Not so for uh, the body of Christ. We who are mature adults, we should be able to see what needs to be done in the body of Christ. See someone in need. See someone hurting. See someone in need in prayer. See someone say, hey, I'm on a phone call. I'm talking a long time. See, oh, ministry that has a need. Oh, I I think I could do that. I'm willing to give it a try and do our part. Everyone needs to do our part. We might not all do the same part, but we all need to do our part. Just as in Israel, every person, every man, 20-year-old able to fight was called to do their part. Another observation is that Moses and Aaron uh, don't do this alone. God gives them 12 leaders, uh, 12 people to help them in this, a leader from every tribe. And note, uh, God doesn't tell Moses, well, Moses, why don't you just choose a leader from every tribe? But it is the fact that it's so significant is that God chooses these 12 people. And God says, and here are the 12 people. Here are the 12 names. How cool is that, right? God speaks to them and he says, you know, um, and once you set apart for me, Chester, Bob, Alan, you know, set apart for me, uh, you know, Tony, set apart for me. You know, he starts naming names like, oh, that's my name. God knows my name. And God wants me to serve in this way. And so God, he, he calls these guys, he calls them by name. So that's why the names are significant. When they heard it for the first time, say, God specifically, intentionally chooses individuals for specific tasks. And he chooses each of you individually for specific tasks. It's amazing. Of course, we don't get the, you know, the the thus saith the Lord from the scriptures. But we can trust that God does that as God opens our doors for us. God is faithful. Uh, and, and he faithfully provides these leaders who come alongside. They're probably gifted in leadership and administration to come alongside with Moses and Aaron to help in this work. God provides leaders. He provides them. And it really just shows that how God provides for the nation of Israel. He provides leaders to help Moseran. He provides them ultimately an army to defend the nation. He's, later on, when they kind of end up wandering for 40 years, God keeps on providing for them to provide food, water, sustenance, provision, guidance, etc. God has been faithful to his chosen people. He's faithful to then, and he's faithful to his chosen people now. And therefore, we as his people can tr- was trust God to provide what we need to accomplish the task which he assigned to us. And the task for us as church is to make disciples of all the nations to the glory of, Jesus, to the glory of God. One last observation, and, it's just, and I'll, just, I'll develop it later, is that Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders, they all obey God's command. Verse, uh, the last verse of verse 19 there. It says, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, that they, they obeyed just as God Commanded, and that's a really cool phrase. We actually will see this phrase repeated in the, in these first four chapters, and even a little bit further on. God is faithful. God is a faithful God. He's always faithful, and therefore, we who are made in the image of God, especially those who have been redeemed, who have been set free from the slavery to sin, ought to strive to be faithful ourselves, like our God. Now, we know we're not going to be perfect faithful, but we ought to strive to be faithful, faithful to Him just as he is faithful to, well, he's faithful to his own word himself. He's faithful to us, his his people. And we'll see this develop later on. But this obedience of Moses and Aaron then leads to the second aspect, aspect number two, and that is this, the the enumeration, the second aspect of the census, the enumeration of the census. And here again, uh, this is verse 20 all the way to to verse 46, and I want to spend time reading it. And just listen to, try to listen to the repetition of of phrases within the section, okay? But also, at times when I read lists like this, also note anything that might be, stand out that's different between, uh, the, uh, in, the, in some of these repeated phrases. Now, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their genealogical registration by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500, Of the sons of Simeon, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, their numbered men, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward. Whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Of the sons of Gad, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, Their numbered men of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Of the sons of Judah, their genealogical registration by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Of the sons of Issachar, their genealogical registration by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. Of the sons of Zebulun, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. Of the sons of Joseph, namely the sons of Ephraim, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. Of the sons of Manasseh, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200 of the sons of Benjamin their genealogical registration by their families by their fathers households according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward whoever was able to go out to war their number of men of the tribe of Benjamin were 35400 of the sons of Dan their genealogical registration by their families by their fathers households according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward whoever was able to go out to war their number of men of the tribe of Dan were 62700 of the sons of Asher Their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to their number of names. From 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Of the sons of Naphtali, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households. According to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are the ones who were numbered, whom Moses and Aaron numbered with the leaders of Israel, 12 men each, of whom was of his father's household. So all the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's households from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, even all the numbered men were 603,550. That was a long read. Uh, But I hope as you read it, you heard the repetition of the phrase. You really can't miss it. And, you know, God didn't have to write it this way or speak it this way, did he? He could have just simply said, oh, and, and Judah had 60,000, Dan had, you know, 30,000, you know, when, he could just done a list, simple list, name, list, name, list, name, list, but the repetition is intentional, obviously, by God, and nothing God does is, is just you know, an accident, and so he leaves it here, when we see these repetitions, they're, they're for a purpose, Therefore, first of all, of course, the repetition does make it easy for memorization, just as having heard it over and over, it would have helped the Israelites who were listening to make sure they follow instructions and, and, and even try to medit- memorize these, these scriptures, would have, uh, it would have helped them memorize. But mostly, it would have emphasized certain truths. And the first significance, and already stated earlier, is that in the repetition of these phrases, right, their genealogical registrations by their families, by the father's house, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. Is that the first thing? that's already stated, is that everyone is counted? Everyone that is going to be involved has to be counted. There's there's no basically no draft dodgers here. There's everybody. You're part of this nation. You're 20 years old. You're you, you, an old. You're able to fight. You need to be counted. 12 tribes listed here. Each tribe down to their their families. It says in in the translation, but it's really that word families is the idea more of like we might think of clans. So it's like it's like a uh, the, the Tam clan or the if you're, sometimes you sometimes go to old Chinatown, you might see the Ing Association the Tam. Well, they're not Association, but the Ing or Wong Association, because that's a, that's like a clan. It's by name. A, they go far enough back. There's a, there's a relationship there, and so that's what this idea of families is. By and then it goes down to the end of their father's households. That's where you're talking more about individual nuclear families, and then the repetition of the, according to the number of names. So they know the number of names. They, they knew the individual names of individuals in those families, in those clans, in, those, in that tribe, in the nation of Israel. And they had a list of all of them. And they counted them and they, and they organized it by the, different, uh, by the different tribes. Each one was counted and added to the list so that when fighting was needed, they were all expected to fight Another thing, though, that stands out, for not only is that everyone is called to do their part, everyone's counted, another thing that stands out in this census are simply the numbers themselves. This is kind of varying numbers, and certainly that can be expected. Twelve different tribes are listed here. They all seem to be rounded numbers, to 50, to 100, it seems like, um, but of all the numbers, that. Uh, and some tribes are larger than others. Uh, Judah, being the, the tribe from which Jesus is going to come from, is the largest here, 74,600. That's kind of in, in, just interesting. Um, but the total is what stands out most like, most of all. 603,550 men, 20 years, old, 20 years old and upward, who were able to go out to war. That's a, that's a good-sized uh, army if needed. Um, and uh, scholars kind of estimate when, when you count the, the women, when you count the children, you count the, the non-fighting men, maybe men who had disabilities or, or just could not uh, fight, uh, estimates are that the total population of Israel in the wilderness was two to two and a half million people. That's a lot of people. And if you've ever been to the wilderness, or if you've ever gone to Israel, you kind of go to the, where the Sinai Peninsula is. Uh, and it's basically it's it's a wilderness, but it's really a desert wilderness. And, it, and when you say desert, you think oh, just maybe like sand dunes, but it's like this it's this desolate, rocky region. Region. It's like nothing nothing seems to grow there. At least at least I've never been there, but I've seen photos on there's nothing there. The fact that there's even a burning bush on, on uh, Mount Sinai is a miracle by itself. It, it's amazing because there's not that many trees and plants. Just go look up uh, Mount Sinai when you go home and look at Google Maps and look around. Check it out, those 360 photos. It's like, wow, oh, there's nothing there. Um, oh, except for tourists. But there is, uh, this, these were two and two and a half million people in the wilderness, and, and it was and wandering around, and God provided for them all but the huge number basically first and foremost speaks to the faithfulness of God it speaks to the faithfulness of God and if you, we remember the faith we know the faithfulness of God because if you just go back to Genesis chapter 12 and if you go back to Genesis 12 and you recall back to the covenant that God made with Abraham there and he promised Abraham a threefold covenant a threefold promise he promised him a land he promised him a people a nation he said and he promised him a blessing a blessing through which he would then bless all the families of the earth and this was uh, and this was a, just a promise to him as Abraham would go out into this land that he would eventually show him. And this promise was made to Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob then had 12 sons, who's one of those sons, Joseph, was sold in slavery into Egypt. Eventually, Joseph rises up, and he then uh, has the opportunity to invite his family, Jacob's family, all his brothers and his father, to go to him and live within Egypt. And according to uh, in, in, in Genesis, the total number of people who go that are part of Jacob's family into Egypt are 70 people. 70 people go into Egypt of, Jacob's, of, of Abraham's descendants, Jacob's family, Israel. And 430 years later, that's how long they were in Egypt, Jacob's descendants in Egypt had multiplied. God had turned them into a mighty nation, of not just like 700,000, you know, but two to two and a half million people. God basically, very clearly, powerfully kept his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. And now, as they're waiting at the, at, in the wilderness of Sinai, God tells them to set up an army because he's preparing them to go and receive the land, the promised land. God's faithfulness to multiply Jacob's descendants are an encouragement that he would keep other promises to them as well. They simply needed to trust him. Sadly and eventually, they, uh, they will fail in that. They won't trust him. And though they, they didn't trust, just trust him, God was, faithful, God was faithful nevertheless. Because we see that he would be faithful to fulfill his promises in the second generation. And we see that, that's going to be a running theme even throughout numbers, and that our God has not changed, and he's going to be faithful. Even when we're faithless, he's going to keep faithful to his, to his promises. But we do need to trust him as we, fulfill for the, as we live in this wilderness of life, as we, as we wander as pilgrims to depend upon him for the resources that we need, the provisions that we need, so that we can fulfill his tasks to make disciples of Jesus Christ. One more final aspect of the census we conclude is in verses 47 to 53, and that is the exception to the census. And you might call this the exemption to the the census even. But let's read 47. Actually, it's going to be 47 to 54. 54, it's a typo there. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel, but you shall appoint the Levites over the temple, over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it, they shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. and they shall take care of it, and they shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the sons of Israel did, according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. We see here that one tribe is exempt from military service. One tribe is left out of the census. And we wonder, why is that? Is this, why is it, is, it, is it kind of like to get to, they don't, is it because they don't get, they get to do nothing? No, they too also have their part. The tribe of Levi here are set apart by God because they have a different part to play in the, in the service of the nation. The reason for them being exempted, as we see as we read here, is because they have been appointed to take care of the tabernacle, the, the tent of meaning, the, the tent that he had given them instructions, the very tent that they had completed and consecrated. And when they consecrated, the, the glory of God came down and dwelt in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And therefore, a period of thirty days they prepared and waited as that pillar of cloud was there and pillar of fire was there. Every day for 30 days as they watched and they knew God was in their presence. And then 30 days later, God gives this instruction. This tabernacle where the glory of God dwelt, this was the task of the Levites to take care of. This holy of holy places. These Levites were, were given the responsible to be in charge of, they were responsible for carrying it, for taking care of it, for taking it down, for setting it up, they were also responsible for protecting it. they were to camp around the tabernacle and around the town and thus be a barrier between the lay people of Israel and the tabernacle itself, because the tabernacle was where God would dwell and meet with Moses, and once a year it would be where Aaron or the next high priest would be able to enter and offer on the day of atonement a sacrifice for the nation. The temple and tabernacle was a holy place like God was holy. And thus any non Levite, anyone who was not consecrated for the work, not set apart by God, would be put to death if they approached him in an incorrect, in a, in a, in a incorrect manner. So to protect the Israelites from the wrath of God, the Levites were then set aside as consecrated, basically intermediaries between God and Israel. They, they, even how they lived right around the tabernacle, in between the, the rest of the tribes, which were all living around the temple, the tabernacle was right in the middle, would just simply show that their role, and eventually, especially uh, the sons of Aaron, who would become priests, who would be, intercede on behalf of the nation Israel. In the following chapters, God's going to elaborate on the responsibilities, and we'll see that in chapter 2, 3, and 4. But the exemption and consecration of Levites points to a significant theme in the book of Numbers. and That is simply the, the holiness of God, that God is holy. And we understand what God is holy because God is basically He's set apart. He's, he's unlike anything that we are like. He's not common. He's, he's holy. He's, he's, and, and not only this from a, uh, just an existence standpoint, his, his being is completely different from anything that is created. He's uncreated. We're created beings. know, everything's created. But also in a moral sense as well. We tend to think of it in a moral sense. That God is morally holy, perfectly holy. Where even we who are called saints, holy ones, even we are not technically living perfectly holy lives, are we? We shouldn't be. We're not. Okay, But yet, God's whole, we're holy in the sense we were set apart, and we're striving to live holy, morally holy lives, but we're not anywhere near the holiness of God. And we see this, the holiness of God, and the, therefore, because God is holy, his people ought to be holy. You remember the book of Leviticus? The whole book of Leviticus is all about how you, God is holy and how those who worship him must approach him in holiness in, in, a, pro, in a particular way. There's all these offerings that they had to offer, all these ways that they had to approach the Lord. It taught that God is holy and needs, and needs to be approached in the way that he prescribes. It is so serious that back in Leviticus chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offered up you know, a strange fire, as we read there, God immediately struck them down dead. It didn't matter that they were sons of Aaron, sons of Aaron the high priest, they had sinned, and they had treated God as unholy, as they profaned his offering. And you would think, you know, you lose your two sons, you're going to be grieving. You're going to be weeping. Oh, my sons, my sons. But immediately, notice what Moses says to Aaron right after his sons are, Aaron's sons are struck down. He says, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Aaron was wise. He had no reason to complain. He and his sons had received all the instruction for how to approach God, and they chose to profane God's temple by offering strange fire, and they were struck down justly by God. That God places the tabernacle in the middle of the nation, surrounds it with a whole tribe consecrated for its service, shows the holiness of God, how he's set apart from the nation there's this transcendence of God that's always a, we see in the scriptures where but it's also and where the worship of God needs to be a priority for the people of God and uh, and that priority of worship where God is to be treated as holy that's why you think about when you think about Jesus how he taught us to pray our father who art in heaven what's the first thing he asks us to pray hallowed be thy name god let your name be treated as holy let it begin with my life, but let other people treat you as holy. Because the reality is, as sinners, none of us treat God holy. We don't treat him the way he deserves to be treated. We don't approach him as the way he ought to be approached. But God wants us to learn, even in our prayers, from the beginning of our prayers, Jesus wants us to learn, that when we approach and we call him Father, we are seeking to, that he would be treated as holy. When God's in, in, in this consecration of the Levites and this exemption shows there's a special priority of worship. The The other 12 tribes, their focus was on war, to be warriors. But the focus of these Levites was on worship. Too many people approach God today, even today, with a, without that, without a, a sense of holiness of God. We approach him in a way that is not right, not true. Too many people... Uh, and remember, uh, seek him as false worshipers, as Jesus tells us, that God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worshipers who worship him in spirit, that is, they worship him out of a, um, out of, they should worship him out of the heart, but many people, they approach God on Sundays and they worship merely out of external observance. they just, you know, people just go through the motions and, and sometimes, if we're honest, we get caught up at that, Right? We just kind of said, Oh man, I just caught up. I was just singing all that song, and I was just thinking, "Oh, this is a great beat, man. This is a great. I love that. This is jamming." Vince's song he, he sounds like an angel, you know. And, you know, just like that. It's like, oh, just caught up in the in the, the externals, and we forgot. Oh wait, hold on a second. I'm supposed to be thinking those thoughts about God, if I'm worshiping Him. I'm supposed to be ascribing Him praise. Oh, hold up. I, I'm, when I give up, I, I give my offering. When I when I spend my time here at church, I'm supposed to be seeking to glorify God. I'm seeking to love Him. When I when I hear that word, I'll preach up there. It's not just so I can let, get get more knowledge. I'm actually supposed to obey that. And so we're to worship in spirit and in truth. A lot of times, people worship God. They attribute to God things that are not true. They say He says things that's not what He says. They say He does things that He does not do, or He proves things. And a lot of times, people do that because they just want to justify their own sinful lifestyles. But people need to worship in spirit and truth. That's the kind of worshipers who approach God. And and, and God shows that necessity to approach him in holiness because by showing us these Levites and how they were set apart for the worship and, and care of the tabernacle. And the question just for us, hopefully we are prioritizing worship of God in our life, but most importantly, we're prioritizing worship of God in spirit and in truth, and most importantly, worship in Christ. One final significance of this, uh, of this section is, is simply that in verse 54, the obedience of Israel. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. And, we, and that repeated phrase is just so significant. This first generation, they started off really well. They did really well. They, they, you know, they were the first ones out. They knew how hard it was to be slaves. They had all these temptations sometimes to go back. And they, when they're here at, at, at Sinai, they actually start off real well. They follow God's instructions. But along the way, they, they, fall, they fall away. They, they, they no longer trust the Lord. But their example, at least in this initial stage, shows, reminds us that we must be faithful to follow God's instructions. For whatever his task is, we, we want to use God's methods, God's instructions, God's ways to do God's work. As uh, um, I think it's Jim Elliot that talks about it. Um, God's work done in God's ways will not lack God's uh, provision. We must remember and obey God's instructions. Because if we fail to do so, it's not going to change God's faithfulness to do what he wants to do. To keep his promises, but it will mean that there will be difficulties and challenges for us as the people of God, even as we seek to do what God wants us to do. At least until we we repent. I want to conclude with just a final illustration, really, just of this and. Uh, and uh, our family, uh, we have, uh, you know, we have Bible reading sometimes at night, and we we, have, we also have, end with a little book reading. And one of the books we've been reading recently to our child is we've been reading this, the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia series. You guys ever, ever read that? You like it? Uh, I love it. But you know, if you don't, if you if you for some reason you, you know you don't know what it's about, it's about basically a whole different land, it's the land of Narnia, where uh, this great lion called Aslan lives. And Aslan, the whole story is basically an allegory of the gospel of Christ, okay, the whole series. It's just really, it's a beautiful allegory. C.S. Lewis was a, a great Christian thinker, and uh, he, he made this into, this allegory. But in the, you know, Line Witch, and the Wardrobe is probably the best of, this, of the books, but I like the sixth one, and you, you know, differ with me. And the sixth book is called The Silver Chair. Um, it's the one they didn't make a movie out of, okay? But... And in this story, inside of Aslan, the, the great lion, gives to this, this main, one of the main characters, Jill, her name's Jill Pohl, he gives her four signs, four signs that she is to, to look for, to remember, and to follow when she is sent to Narnia so that she can help rescue this Prince Rillian who is trapped in the underworld. So, you know, you kind of just get that. You just think about what the, kind of this, uh, this allegory. But anyways, but the sad thing is that Jill, who's given these four signs, at first she starts off kind of remembering them, trying to repeat them herself. But along the way, she forgets and she stops repeating them. She stops thinking about them. She gets distracted by her surroundings, by the circumstances, and she completely for- forgets it. In fact, she completely botches the first three signs. She just she blows it. And the consequence of that for her and for those who are with her is that they end up kind of going through greater difficulties than they had to that we were required because they didn't remember and follow the signs that Aslan gave them. And so it's just, and of course, uh, but uh, though she is, uh, she is uh, in a sense, unfaithful to the signs, nevertheless, Aslan is faithful. And I won't give you the rest of the story, but you know, you can read it. It's a good, fun little story to read for kids. Uh, keep in mind, there's some older words that you might kind of scratch your head at. All right, so uh, the journey. And so the same goes for the nation Israel. When they who are given the instructions, the signs from God, how to prepare themselves to enter the land, they need to trust him, they need to follow his ways. But along the way, they forget his signs, they forget his commands, they forget his instructions, and they end up going through 40 years of wandering. And the same, brothers and sisters, goes for us today. God has given us instructions, God has given us commands that we might follow so that we can fulfill God's work of making disciples. And if we don't follow God's commands, if we don't follow God's direction, we live in sin, we, we don't follow His ways, then it's gonna make it hard for us, more difficult than it needs to be. But let us remember, let's follow the signs of God's word. Let's follow the instructions as the, this first generation begins to do. May we be faithful so that we can be, continue to be a generation that fulfills God's purposes for us until He calls us home. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness and your holiness that's reflected in the scriptures this morning. Thank you, Father, for reminding us that we who are created in your image, we who are redeemed and set apart who are, uh, for to be your people, ought to also be holy and be faithful. Lord, may you uh, enable us to do so. We On our own, we, you know, Lord, we're, we are prone to wander. We often fail. But, Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to look to you always. Help us to depend upon you and help us to obey the instructions that you give us. Even when the world says it's foolishness, even when the world says that's ancient, outdated rules that no longer really apply or no longer relevant in our modern era of our world, but Lord, we know you know better. You are the one true God, that you alone rules over all heaven and earth. We, Father, will trust in you because you have redeemed us. You've set us apart. Thank you, Father. For giving us this word that prepares us, equips us to do the work of your work in our world until you call us home, until you bring us home. Father, we thank you and praise you for these things, for your truths. Continue to shape this church into the the church you want us to be, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.